Hey Packers, to a disappointing loss in a championship game in 1960, Vince Lombardi, head coach, started the next season addressing his team by lifting up a football and saying these famous words. Gentlemen, this is a football. His statement made a statement for how he intended to lead his team to victory the next year. He would be taking the team back to the basics. His comment may have insulted these professional athletes who have probably spent years upon years playing football, but Lombardi was determined to bring his team to victory by drilling the fundamentals over and over again. That year, he'd be focusing on tackling and blocking. Some of the players would poke fun at their coach in practice saying, Coach, slow down. <laughs> Wait for it. Uh, Lombardi knew that if they could do the basics well in practice, they'd be ready for a game time situation. So practice after practice, their muscle memory and instincts were being trained to respond with the right technique, the right strength, and the right skill in a game. His strategy to victory actually did pay off because that year the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37-0 in the NFL Championship game in 1961. This story reminds us that basics matter. And today I'd like to consider something basic with you. We're going to be considering what a Christian is. And this question, though basic, really does matter, especially around the church. Because I think it's easy to assume that everyone who comes through those church doors and gets involved in the life of the church is a Christian. Or we assume that every kid in a Christian family who goes to Sunday school uh, or is in youth group is a Christian. But I think we assume too much. So today my plan is to answer this basic question. What is a Christian? How would you answer that if someone were to ask you? Well, as I've asked people this question, I've noticed that a Christian can mean different things to different people in different communities, cultures, and countries. If you were to ask my Jewish neighbors what a Christian is, you may get a different answer than if you ask my Catholic or Muslim neighbors what a Christian is. But we're not looking for their definitions. We want the definition that matters most. We want to hear what God defines a Christian as being. So today we're going to learn and perhaps relearn what God says a Christian is in his word. So I want this to be a, a practical sermon so that you're equipped to answer when you're asked what a Christian is, but I also want it to be a personal and probing sermon so that you could ask yourself these questions. Am I really a Christian according to what God's Word says? And though much of this may not be new to you, I pray it's true for you. So as we proceed, I want to Ask everyone to ask themselves this question. Let this question be the lingering thought throughout this whole sermon. Am I a Christian? Is what I hear in the word true for me? According to God's definition. According to God's definition in his word. And if you are, what you're about to see in God's word is about you. It is your story. So... My hope is to lift up the Bible and read the Bible today and say, ladies and gentlemen, this is what God says a Christian is. My intent is for those of you who are Christians, uh, that you would not be insulted by the basics, but that you'd be refreshed 
and renewed and strengthened in your faith to remember anew what God has done for you in and through his Son and his Spirit. And in doing so, I hope that those of you who aren't yet Christians will listen in and hear God speaking and that you'd come to him, that you'd hear from God and become a Christian even today. So without further ado, what is a Christian? Here's my basic answer. A Christian is a person created by God, corrupted by sin, and created anew in Christ. A Christian is a person created by God, corrupted by sin, and created anew in Christ. Now before we go any further, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege we have to hear from your word on this very basic and important matter. Help us to understand your word clearly and to understand if we are actually in Christ, if we are actually believers. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in wonderful ways today. In Jesus' name, amen. Surprisingly, the word Christian is scarce in the New Testament. It's rare. It's only seen three times, in fact. It appears in Acts 11, verse 26, Acts 26, 28, and 1 Peter 4, 16. I'd like you to take a look at those verses later. But these verses tell us three important things about Christians. First is that Christians are disciples, meaning they are learners of Christ who belong to the church. Second, Christians are people that seek to persuade others to become Christians. And third, Christians bear the name of Christ. And while the word Christian is rare in the New Testament, the concept of being a Christian is a major theme. And it's captured in several other words. So if you were to search out words like disciple, believer, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will find the category of Christian bursting at the seams. It's everywhere. To be a Christian means we're family, united to one another in love, because we're united to Christ by faith. It means we're God's people, both as individuals and as a community. And all the benefits and promises that we enjoy as God's people are dependent on our union with Jesus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's start with the most basic truth of all. A Christian is a person created in God's image. Let's start there. A Christian is a person created in God's image. That's the first thing to mention. Now, today I'm going to give you many different verses for your reference, as you can see underneath there. I'd like you to take note of those. And for the sake of time, I'm going to only select one or two of these verses for each point. But I've given you more verses today, hoping that you'll meditate on these truths with joy later. Okay? So we start today by considering creation. Christians were created in God's image. And as we do, I want to start with something often forgotten in the discussion of creation. Here it is. God did not need to create anything. God did not need to create you or me or creation. Do you believe that? Now this is an important place to start as we consider creation. Did it ever occur to you when you're enjoying a beautiful sunset or a fresh-picked apple in the fall that this thing that you're enjoying wasn't and isn't necessary? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the first verse of the Bible, we're introduced to an extremely important theme in Scripture. Cornelius Van Til called it the creator-creature distinction. 
The three-person God is the creator, and everyone and everything else are his creation. The three-person God is the creator of everyone and everyone else and everything else in his creation, and we dare not blur the lines. We depend on him. He does not depend on us. We need him. He does not need us. We exist because he created us. He is necessary. We are not. As Chris Watkins says, the universe is not necessary, and God did not create because he had to. God did not make the universe to satisfy something that was incomplete in him. He does not need the universe in order to be who he is, and he does not need us in order to be fulfilled. Neither we nor the universe is necessary. We may be important, precious, glorious even, but preciously and gloriously unnecessary. <laughs> Are you humbled yet? Welcome to church. You glad you came this morning? <laughs> we humans are God's creatures. We are God's creation. And we must remember that we are accountable to him for the life that he has given us. Now with this in mind, let's consider more of what it means that God created us in his image. Look with me at Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What I'm about to say here is true of all human beings. This is the basic truth about people even if they are not Christians or even if they don't believe it. It's our basic origin story. We were created in God's image as male and female people. Where did we come from? God himself made us. And why did he make us in his image as male and female? Because he chose to. Because he wanted to. Because he did. As Acts 17 says, he even determined when and where we'd live. He is the creator and everyone and everything else is his creation. And he has the right to do, to make, uh, sorry, to make and to do whatever he wants with his creation. The Bible says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And in his grace and beauty... He decided and designed two genders that would complement each other wonderfully and create a glorious image of himself to all creation. Humans are the crown of God's creation with a privileged position in creation and a serious responsibility to their creator. We will pay account for the life that he has given us. So don't forget this creator-creature distinction. Though you and I as image bearers may be important we are still unnecessary. So be amazed that God even created anything at all. Be amazed that creation even is. Because it was not and is not necessary. And be amazed that you even are. Because we humans, male and female, created in the image of God, were not and are not necessary either. There has never been a day and age where such a basic truth is so frequently and flagrantly contested. But a Christian is a human being made in God's image. And this is part one of the story. And we share this part with every fellow human being. Men and women, boys and girls are made in the image of God. We share a common ground with all human beings since we have a common creator and a common, uh, a common origin story. His definition is what matters. We do not have the right to redefine who we are. Our creator defines who we are. 
We were made in his image as male and female. Now today there is an outrage about gender in our culture, and we who believe the Bible must remember that those who kick against God's design and authority as their creator are kicking against God himself. Their main issue about their identity and their gender is with their maker, whom they will meet and give an account to. So let's keep looking for opportunities, believers, to persuade them to be reconciled to God through Christ. Basics really do matter, don't they? Now that's part one of our story as human beings. And we share this with every human being. And the same is true with part two. The next point is true of you whether you're a Christian or not. A Christian is a person corrupted by sin. That's number two. Now if we continue in the story, we see Genesis 3 is the next major part of our story. It's a pivot point as people created in God's image rebel against God. And this is our history, it's our story, and it shows us that even us Christians have a shady past. And that's because Adam and Eve passed their sin natures down to us. We inherited this sin nature, this corruption. In Genesis 3, we see that they failed to love God by turning away from Him. Then they were cast out, experiencing one of the consequences of their sin, a broken relationship with God. Our natures are now ruined. And what becomes apparent is that if this relationship with God is ever going to be mended and repaired, restored, God himself must do the work. Because we are too far gone in our sin. Our natures are crooked and corrupt. We are spiritually lost souls, aren't we? And this image that we were created in has been distorted. Our hearts are hard now, and we're full of all kinds of evils. In Romans, Paul makes a case for mankind's guilt before God because of their sin. He's, he's pointing out the heart condition of all unbelievers everywhere throughout all time, and his words still apply. In Romans 1, 29-31, he says this about humanity's corrupt hearts. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, heartless, ruthless. Your heart is not basically good. It is basically evil. It is against and contrary to God. Now at this point, I hope you see that you and me and all of humanity are in desperate need of a Savior. We need God to change our nature and make us new. And that is exactly what our good God has done in Christ. Now before we go on to the good news, let me ask you a question. Do you agree so far with God's evaluation of you? That you're made in His image as a male or female? That you are corrupted in your sin? Or is this impossible for you to admit? The bad news that we're looking at right now sets us up to understand the rest of Scripture and the good news that's coming. The rest of the story for us as Christians must be understood in light of where we are right now. Genesis 3. So it's basic, but take it in. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Do you agree with it? 
Now, for the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at the good news of our identity and destiny as Christians. This part of the sermon does not apply to everyone. Not every human being is a Christian. It only applies to the men and women, boys and girls, who have trusted in Christ, have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus to save them. But if you're not yet a Christian, please don't check out. These next few minutes are clutch for you to understand what a Christian is and how to become one. So don't check out. Here's the next thing I'd say if someone were to ask me, what is a Christian? According to God, according to his word, a Christian is a person created anew in Christ. Some familiar verses, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is probably a favorite to many of us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Colossians 3, verses 9 to 10 says, Do not lie to one another. He's speaking to the church at Colossae. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So our, our salvation is an act of God where he restores us into his image. We are made new. We are recreated into the very image of God, our creator. So though God's image is distorted in us by our sin, it is not completely erased from us. Through the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, it is slowly reassembled and recreated in us, which means our epic fail into sin is not the final word in our story. Though we're responsible for our corruption and accountable to God for it, he is able to redeem the mess we've made by remaking us into his image. Making us more like Christ. He's making all things new, including our identity. His act of salvation is a transformation in which his spirit comes to live in us and makes us more like Christ, our creator, our savior. So if you're a Christian here today, then a change in you has taken place and it cannot be undone by you because it was God who changed you and is changing you. He's left a permanent mark on you. And maturing and growing as a Christian means that we are making new decisions in line with our new positions in Christ. And though it may happen slowly, it will happen surely. God's new creation echoes the original creation in many ways. It is an act of his creative power and love. We've been remade and created anew in Christ. Does this describe you? Is this your story? Are you a new creation in Christ? If you're not, that means you're not yet a Christian, according to, Bible, uh, according to God and according to the Bible. But don't be shy. Today, you've come to the right place. You can come to know him and be new today. You've come here, and maybe you have questions. And if you do have more questions, please ask us before you leave. If you want to talk to anyone, we're glad to help. Now, how else does Scripture answer this question, what is a Christian? It also says that a Christian is a person chosen by God. I've given you many verses there to consider. How is it that some people go to church, hear the same messages, and grow up in the same house, yet one believes in Christ and the other doesn't? How is this possible? They've heard the same gospel Yet only one has believed that gospel. 
Well, one of the answers to that question is that God chooses who will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Not everyone who hears the gospel believes the gospel because not everyone who hears the gospel is chosen by God for salvation. Remember what Jesus told his first followers in John 15. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So Christian, don't boast about being a Christian. You are not better than others. God chose you to be a Christian. We only came to him because he came for us first. Does this truth comfort you? Does it bug you? If it bothers you or bugs you, I encourage you to look up the other verses on the screen there. Often in the Bible, God's choosing or his election of his people is meant to encourage his people about his love for them. It's meant to be a way of assuring them that God is for them and that God loves them. As Deuteronomy, basic, uh, Deuteronomy 7 basically says, he chose us because he loves us and he loves us because he loves us. Not because we're lovely, but because he is love. So Christians sing praises. Sing praises because God loves you and chose you to be his. How else does scripture define a Christian? It also says a Christian is a person who has heard the gospel. You cannot be a Christian without hearing the gospel of Christ. This is so basic you may feel like saying, Coach, slow down. Sarcastically. Remember, Paul said this about the church in Thessalonica. We also thank God constantly for this. Then when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Notice, they received the word that they heard and accepted it, not as man's word, but as God's word. And God was at work through his word and those who believed his word. It's circular. We must hear, then receive, and accept the word that we hear as God's word. And God will be at work in us by the word that we believe. The same is true now. Hearing is essential to believing. You must hear the gospel to believe the gospel. You might remember Romans 10 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard? Sorry, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Repetition is the best teacher, and this passage highlights the church's responsibility to preach Christ and the responsibility of the hearer to believe in Christ. This passage focuses on the preacher and the hearer, or the hearing. Today I want to highlight the necessity of hearing the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That means nobody will become a Christian if they don't hear about Christ. The message of Jesus must be heard by unbelievers in order for them to become believers. Without hearing the gospel, humans will die in their sins. Period. Only 
Jesus can save us from the corruption and consequences of our sin. Only Jesus. Hearing the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of his grace towards mankind, is required to believe the gospel and so to become a Christian. I know it's basic, but if you're a Christian here today, that's because someone told you about Christ. You heard the message of Christ. And I hope that you will be thankful for them. What else can we say? Scripture also says a Christian is a person who has been born again. Being born again is, uh, in theological terms, known as regeneration. And notice how the theme of newness continues as we consider what being a Christian is. Uh, We are new creations in Christ, and we have a new birth. And just like creation, the new birth is a physical picture of the spiritual work that God does in us by his Spirit. As Matthew Barrett says, regeneration is the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, of granting spiritual life to each Christian, raising them from the dead, so that they are now able to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. We Christians were born again, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, because God in his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again. Just like babies don't give themselves physical life, we didn't give ourselves spiritual life. God did. On his own, without our permission. And he didn't need our help. We are passive recipients of the spiritual birth in a similar way that babies are in their birth. In John 3, verses 7 to 8, Jesus uses birth and the wind as analogies for our regeneration. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When someone is born again, we cannot, we cannot claim, well, we told you so, or I saw that coming. It is the work of God. It is not something that we can predict or program. Sure, it happens through the word, absolutely, through the gospel, absolutely, but just like the wind, so it is with the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and the Holy Spirit consults no one for who and where and when he's going to give birth to people. He does not ask us. He he just does it. Because our God is in the heaven, and he does Whatever he pleases. He's free to do whatever he pleases. Now, how would you know if you were born again, though? Scripture does help us in this area. In 1 John 5, 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. Or born of God, sorry. Notice the past tense. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. Those who believe in Jesus have already been born again. In fancy theological terms, this means that regeneration precedes faith. Which means being born again happens first, then we believe the gospel that we hear. This is the cause and effect relationship between regeneration and faith. One necessarily leads to another. Those who are born again indeed believe the gospel. We see this in Acts 16 where we hear that God opened Lydia's heart to hear and pay attention to what Paul was preaching. 
so it is with us. When God the Spirit gives us a new birth, he opens our heart to believe the gospel that we've heard. Now this point leads to the next, which tells us that a Christian is a person who has repented and believed the gospel. Mark 1.15, Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent and believe the gospel. This is the, the message that the church continues to say, and Romans 10 explicitly states that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, to repent means to turn from sin, to change our mind, to change our direction, and to believe means to trust in Jesus to save us from our sin. And if you've been born again, you will repent and believe the gospel. It is inevitable. But now I want to talk to you if you aren't yet a Christian and you're here today. First of all, thanks for coming or thanks for watching us online. But if you aren't yet a believer in Christ, I want to persuade you to become a believer in Christ. I don't know what you're going through today, but I can tell you that God made you and has been gracious to you. He knows everything about you. You can't keep any secrets from him. You, like me and everyone else in history, have turned your back on him. You have rebelled against you, and he has been patient with you, letting you breathe and live in his world. Though you rebel against him in your heart and actions every day, he continues to let you live because he's gracious. But he's closing in on you. And it's time for you to be saved. It's time for you to come to him with your guilt and run no longer away from him. It's time for you to turn from your sin and run to Jesus. It's time that you confess that Jesus is Lord and he alone can save you from your sin. It's time for you to believe that God raised him from the dead. The scripture says that whoever believes that Jesus is Lord will be saved. That's the promise of God according to his word. He does not break his promises. God promises to save all believers from their sin and from his wrath. Faith in Jesus is our only escape from the coming judgment. So come to Jesus today. If you're lost, be found in him. Put it off no longer. Come to him. If you want to talk more about this, please don't be shy. Come talk to me afterwards. Now, for those of us who are questioning if, they're, if you're a believer or not, let me ask you, have you repented and believed the gospel? Have you turned from your sin to Jesus? Does this truth describe you? Ask yourself, is this true of me? If so, you're a Christian. That's what God's word says. And let me carry on. The Bible also says that a Christian is a person who is no longer condemned for their sin. Romans 8.1 is a favorite for many Christians. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Scripture speaks of us believers as people who are justified. Which means God declares us just or righteous or right to be condemned is the opposite of this, but we are no longer condemned. Though we used to be condemned and guilty before God, 
Since believing in Christ, God has pronounced us righteous because we're in Christ, the righteous one. And Jesus atoned for us, for our sin, and credited his righteousness to us. Romans 3, sorry, 8, 33 to 35 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice how the legal language of justification moves us into the relational language of the love of Christ. Christian, this is God's authoritative word on your state and standing before him. You're declared right in his sight. The Lord is your righteousness. Let this truth reset your mindset when you're tempted to grovel in your guilt. God the Father is for you, as verse 32 of Romans 8 has just said. He showed that he was for you by sending his Son to be your Redeemer. And God the Son is for you. He died, raised, ascended, and is even now interceding for each believer. Meaning, he effectively intervenes for us. God the Spirit is for us. And in us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. Hallelujah. The triune God is for us, believers. Though Satan, the accuser, does accuse us and many others can find multiple evidences of our guilt and sin against God throughout our history, we cannot clear that. We've been cleared by God himself. We have sinned against God. That is true of you. That is true of me. We cannot and should not deny that. But according to God's pronouncement, we are declared righteous. It will not be held against us. Hallelujah! <laughs> the threat of condemnation is gone forever in Christ. But if you are outside of Christ, that threat of condemnation is still hanging over your head. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. By now you've seen that becoming a Christian is nothing less than a transformation. God is making us new after the pattern of Christ's image. It starts with an internal change of our identity and it climaxes with an external change in our destiny. The God who gloriously makes our character new, like Christ's character, continues to make us new till he redeems even our bodies to be like Christ's glorious resurrection body. This is the last part of our story as Christians, and this has not yet been realized for those of us who are here today. But one day, a Christian will discover that he will receive a new glorified body. A Christian is a person, male or female, who will receive a new glorified body. Look at Philippians 3. Our, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is still in the future for us who are still on earth as believers. But in the future, believer, your body will be transformed to be like Christ's resurrection body. These resurrection bodies will be suited for resurrection life. 
We will be remade by God to spend eternity with Him and other believers in the new heavens and new earth. Our lowly, weak, and fragile bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. No longer subject to sin, sickness, or death. He will give us a body to glorify and enjoy Him with forever and ever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Well, I hope by now you've come to see and understand what a Christian is according to God's Word. There's much more to be said, but this is just a basic reminder today. Now, given all that you've heard today, let me leave you with this personal question. Are you a Christian according to God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for...